Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is National Book Award winner James McBride. He's the author of The Good Lord Bird, The Collar of Water, Five Carat Soul, Kill Him and Leave Him, and many more. His new novel is Deacon King Kong, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. James McBride will be joining us on March 17th as a part of the North Carolina Book Festival and Quail Ridge Books Arts and Lecture Series. James, welcome to the program. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And James, I last hosted you in 2014 at the North Carolina Book Festival that was then called the North Carolina Literary Festival at the James B. Hunt Jr. Library on North Carolina State University's campus. And you had just won a National Book Award for The Good Lord Bird. How has life been treating you since then? Uh, not too shabby. Um, well, you know, <laughs> uh, that was a... Uh, there are, were a lot of people who, at that year, who should have, you know, who should have, who were qualified to win the the National Book Award. I just got it was just my my day to be lucky. But what that does is it. Um, you don't know if your jokes are funny anymore because people laugh anyway. <laughs> but uh, it it I don't know. I mean, it's hard to. Um, I've never won anything like that before and, and likely won't, I mean, win anything like that again. But, I mean, what's winning? I mean, you, when you make a living as a, writing, as a writer, that, that's, that's winning enough, you know. And I should say that Quail Books is one of my, my favorite. It's, it's because of this bookstore and bookstores like it that, that I have a career because independent bookstores have done so much for writers like me, especially when I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, but even now... Um, it's just so it's so important for uh, f- it's just important that that quail and, and bookstores like it survive and thrive yeah thank you so much james and um you were one of my favorite guests that we ever had and i'm so delighted to be sitting here with you and that you'll be joining us again in raleigh on march 17th uh, i want to jump right into deacon king kong this is such a great novel i could not put it down i did not want to put it down um it's just january as we sit here talking and i already know it is going to be in contention for my favorite novel of 2020 uh, this novel opens with a man's sport coat otherwise known as deacon king kong walking or stumbling up to a drug dealer, Deems, and shooting him in the head. The first couple of pages could lead to a whole student thesis, um, utilitarianism and James McBride's Deacon King Kong or some such thing um, is what I'm imagining. Can you talk about this? Was it your intention to open the novel with a philosophical statement? Um, not really. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the idea was to set forth an event that creates waves or creates a chain of events so that we can roll out the entire community. Mm-hmm. Um, the housing project that I write about is not dissimilar to the one that I was born in and and still work in, you know, four or five times a month. Mm-hmm. And um, so, and the people are varied and different. Uh, they're, they're not, they're not all the same. They're like people in any neighborhood. And so I, what I want to do is I wanted to, I needed an incident that would, would allow the reader to visit all the different facets of the community. Hmm. So sport coat shooting the, the worst drug dealer the project has ever seen roll, and, and not killing him, mm-hmm. which was important, mm-hmm. um, helps roll out all the other ancillary and important characters. And it, it, it gives us a wide berth. It gives us a lot, give, gave me a lot of space to introduce those characters in a way that was, um, that I hope was engaging and also I hope, I hope was funny. I mean, 
mean, it's really hard to write about something like this in a funny way, but mm -hmm. you you want to try to be funny. Otherwise, you know, what's the point, you know? Yeah, I've described the book as um, a deacon shoots a drug dealer in the head and then hilarity ensues, <laughs> which I think it does. <laughs> well, you know, life is so stupid, you better laugh. Right, yeah, agreed. So next I want to ask you about sports coats, sport coat's wife, Hetty, who also in the novel's opening pages follows a light outdoors, walks into the harbor, and dies. Hetty continues to be a presence for the rest of the novel, or rather, Hetty's ghost, at least a sport coat sees it. Is Deacon King Kong a ghost story and if so what do you see as its lineage in a long line of excellent literary ghost stories um that's a very good question I never thought of it that way I always thought of his wife uh as someone who speaks I, I saw her as a medium to his history and I had to figure out a way to get to his history so that the reader could at some point see who the full man was. And they can't really see who the full man was until they see the woman who created him, see who the woman who created him was. Mm -hmm. um, he had to have a reason, you know, motivation, as they say in the acting business, mm. to, to lose it all and pull out his, his pea shooter and shoot this kid. Mm. And so the loss of Hetty and, and his, the, the accumulation of life's misfortunes that fell upon this guy's head um, was a, a necessary ingredient in order to get the pot boiling. But once it was boiling, then you, 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 you don't want to lose such a wonderful... Hetty's a great character. And I didn't want to lose her. So, um, and he had it, he needed people to, he needed, he needed to explain himself to people. And that's why Hetty was there. She, her, her character allowed him to explain himself to her and to, uh, and to the reader. I never thought of, I never really thought of her as a ghost. Mm -hmm. I always thought of her as someone he was talking to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, when people die, we talk, you know, we, we talk to the dead sometimes and we don't. You know, we just feel they're not far. That's that's how it was with Hetty. She just wasn't far. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you so much, James. And um, I'm interviewing you here in Baltimore as we sit at the American Booksellers Association's Winter Institute in the Inner Harbor. But I'm coming from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Much of this novel, by way of the characters, and I'm using characters in the plural sense, much of this novel, by way of the characters past, is involved with the Carolinas. Can you talk about the influence of the Carolinas on Deacon King Kong? Absolutely. I mean, my father's from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. My mother grew up in Virginia. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in South Carolina doing the James Brown book. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I have relatives. My brother lives in North Carolina. I have a lot of cousins and a bunch of people here in the Carolinas. So I have a history here. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm history there in, in the Carolinas. And um, there's a spiritualness and an openness to people, in my opinion, mm -hmm. to Southerners that Northerners simply do not have. Mm -hmm. Um, and it goes beyond the business of someone from the South being able to tell you their life story in five minutes during a cab ride. There is a, there is a kind of, I would say, a deep decency to Southerners that is much more apparent and much, and there's more, there's more, in my opinion, more forgiveness for your dirty laundry in the southern people than there is in your basic Yankee. Now, that's dangerous to talk that way, but that's just my feeling. And so my characters, or the characters in the book, 
were from the South, and many of the blacks from New York were from the South, they, they carry that with them. And in fact, there's a character, for example, um, the sport coat meets a, he works in a liquor store, what's one of his jobs, and he meets, meets a man from the South who says, you know, his wife put a mojo on him. It's a white man, but they, they have the same cultural back, you know, they have same cultural uh, upbringing, and so they, 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 they communicate, yeah, I know what it's like, yeah, what did she do? Oh, she put some jelly, some jelly in your shirt. Oh, yeah, that you can't do, you know, the same <laughs> wacky sense of, of belief and purpose that unites them. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> I find that characters from the South, and in the case of the Carolinas, which I know a little bit, have always been very, very effective for me as a writer to use and to work with. Yeah, and on page 239 of this novel, Deacon King Kong's sport coat talking to his friend Hot Sausage in an attempt to work his way out of a jam that Hot Sausage will not help him out of, says, I'll get Rufus then. He's from my home country. You can count on a South Carolina man. Can you really count on a South Carolina man, James? <laughs> well, if you're a South Carolina man talking to another South Carolina man, you certainly can. But if you're a South Carolina man talking to a Georgia man, you might not want to count on that Georgia man too much, and vice versa. Um, people from the you know people from the home country tended to look out for each other I, I know this from my own upbringing in New York most of my relatives were from the south and they would say you know oh yeah yeah he's from he's from my home country and it meant they were from the same town or from the same county and um, and that that meant a little something I, I think it, it it means something now still you know people who are immigrants who come from Europe or from South America or Mexico they they say, oh yeah, he's from uh, yeah, he's from my home my home area or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of bonding. There's a little bit of um, there's a little comfort they get, mm -hmm. you know, from that. Nice, thank you so much, listeners. We are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with James McBride. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with James McBride, author of Deacon King Kong, published by our friends at Riverhead Books. James, can we talk about moonshine, specifically King Kong, which is a moonshine brewed by one of Sports Coat's friends, and it is a concoction that Sport Coat enjoys so much that he has been nicknamed Deacon King Kong. Can you talk to us about King Kong the drink and how it worked its way into your story? Well, um, you know, my stepfather uh, went to jail uh, during Prohibition for uh, making uh, booze in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. The still broke, and the, the whiskey went through the floor into the light fixture downstairs, mm -hmm. and the guy downstairs had a glass underneath the light fixture, and he got drunk mm -hmm. drinking alcohol that came through the ceiling, into the, and he went into the street. My stepfather went out there to get him, 
to reel him in, and the cops caught him, and he went to jail for a couple of years for making alcohol, you know, uh, illegal booze. So I always liked the idea, and I've had moonshine from North Carolina, actually, and uh, it's pretty potent stuff. Um, it, it, there's, there's something about homemade alcohol and the whole business of what it is and what it represents that's just it's just wonderful for a character in a story like this especially in New York where you think it's the great cosmopolitan city and you know I remember in Philly there was a lady in North Philly who used to sell moonshine from North Carolina for five dollars mm-hmm. you get a five gallon uh, bottle of it and it would just knock you out I mean it would send you it would send you to the moon mm-hmm. so it, it this kind of stuff is this is the kind of stuff that novelists you know salivate over mm-hmm. so uh, uh, people wouldn't name their booze they'd give their booze names so mm-hmm. um, this booze was, was nicknamed King Kong mm-hmm. but he wanted to call it I think he called it Sonny Liston first and then Muhammad Ali knocked him out so he decided to call it King Kong mm-hmm. nice thank you so much um Sport coat, Deacon King Kong, loves baseball and deems the drug dealer whose sport coat shoots in the head and does not kill. That was a pitching phenom, which is part of what has sport coat so fired up that deems is wasting his life by focusing his talents on selling drugs instead of on throwing baseballs. Can you talk to us about the importance of baseball to this novel, Deacon King Kong? Well, in the 60s, you know, when I was coming up, baseball was a big sport in the city. Um, you don't see black kids playing. You don't see kids in the city at all playing baseball. You see kids in the suburb. And it's I'm, it's just a great sport. I mean, baseball, I don't follow as much as I did, but it's a thinking man's game. And, uh, and it requires patience. And it requires, you're forced to sit there and, and think about things. And focus. And so, um, I just thought it was a good, because it was so popular then, and also the Mets were around at the time. New York Mets were a hapless baseball team who, by some miraculous turn of events, won the World Series in 1969. Um, They were around, and it just seemed like a good, it seemed like a, a good vehicle to use. Because baseball is a bigger sport then and, and, and even now it doesn't suffer from the same kind of commercial encroachment that football and basketball um, enjoy. Not that baseball is, is, is not commercial, but baseball still has there's still some purity, hmm. not a lot, but there is some purity left in the game. Yeah, and I should mention that we're sitting right beside the Baltimore Orioles ballpark as we are talking. If you haven't been up to the fitness center yet, the window looks directly down onto the field. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. Nice. I walked around it this morning. I walked around the whole yard. Yeah, it's a beautiful park. It's, what a place. Yeah, it's yeah, a beautiful it's too place bad a better team game. doesn't play there. Well, I yeah, well, <laughs> I, when I was a reporter at the Washington Post, I did a story about Cal Ripken Sr., mm-hmm. Jr., and Billy Ripken, all yep. of them together. Mm-hmm. And I really liked Cal Ripken Sr. a lot. Yeah. I thought he was just—he was a great guy. He was yeah. fantastic. I was a young reporter at the time, and mm-hmm. he was—he was so generous with his time, and he was a wise guy. He'd been in baseball a long time, mm-hmm. um, and they, the Orioles didn't really give him a clean shot at managing. He was there right. for a year or so, and then sure. they you know, shipped him out. But 
he was he was a baseball man through and through. I like that Ripken family. Yeah, yeah. Good folks. That was a different era for the Baltimore Orioles, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Um, continuing on with Deems, let's talk about his code. He is loyal to Sport Coat, even though Sport Coat shoots him. Uh, he does not want to make church people mad. He does not fuss with the older folks who meet by the flagpole in the courtyard where he sells drugs. He is also known to be very patient with revenge. Can you talk to us about Deems? Does he have a code? Um, well, Deems is a complicated character because, you know, the only kindness that was shown to him in his life came from church and from sport coat, who was a Sunday school teacher and the people he knows. And that, that pings to real life, you know. Um, uh, in, in the case of Deems, he, he was not someone who was because his mother was basically a drunk and his grandfather did all the work and then when his grandfather died he was more or less left on his own Sportcoat was someone that he looked up to even though Sportcoat was a bit of a drunk himself he was kind and he was a good baseball coach um, when Deems left all that behind for the lucrative uh, the lucrative world of selling drugs there was a part of him that never really left left the church and left sport coat and so sport coat really represents to deems the a piece of the goodness that he thought he had just simply abandoned um so i i had that that had to work um in order for their relationship to evolve and to fire again mm-hmm. you know yeah Thank you, James. And I want to talk about a couple of the other characters in the novel. First, can you tell us about Sister G and Soup? I want you to introduce these characters for our listeners, but I also specifically am hoping you will talk about Soup's affinity for Mr. Rogers. <laughs> well, Sister G is um, she is one of the elders of uh, Five Ends Baptist Church with, with Deacon King Kong Sportcoat, is a deacon. Uh, and she's a very wise and very smart and very beautiful woman who eventually falls in love with a with a white cop, white Irishman from New York, from New York City Police Department, um, who was named um, uh, Potts. But um, uh, what was the other part of the question? Um, I'm hoping you can also talk about Soup and specifically oh yeah, his Soup affinity. Lopez. Yeah. Well, see, uh, Soup Lopez is a giant. He's a giant Puerto Rican kid who went to jail and he came out of jail and he. He helps, he helps Sister G and Sport Coat out of a jam, mm-hmm. in part because of his size. He looks like a, just a terrifically mean, like just a, like the hardest looking rock you'd ever want to walk you know, by on the side. If you see him walking down the street, you just cross the street. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, he's not what you think. You know? it, it, on the inside, he's just a meek little kid who, who everyone knew and really liked a lot. And his affinity for Mr. Rogers goes back to my own childhood um you know we all love mr rogers mr rogers was loved in the ghetto man it didn't matter whether the ghetto was in you know roanoke virginia and it was a, a you know a, a lean-to in roanoke or a trailer park in richmond or a, a housing project in brooklyn mr rogers had something special mm-hmm. and so i wanted to show that you know i i always thought fred rogers was way ahead of his time i'm glad to see that he's finally gotten the right kind of attention yeah, and I have a three-year-old son at home, so my love for Mr. Rogers is being renewed um, with everyone else's, I think, at the Well, that's time. good. I mean, you can't, can't go wrong with Mr. Rogers. No, you cannot. <laughs> Thank you, James. And um, finally, I want to ask you about Elefante. 
Elefante is a made man, as was his father, and he gets tied up in a hunt for a lost artifact, a statue that is worth millions of dollars. Can you tell us about Elefante and why it was important to have this man and this story in this neighborhood in South Brooklyn? Well, I mean... In the 60s, you know, New York was more, in some ways, more integrated. Brooklyn was more integrated than it is now. You had, and people had to talk to each other. They had to contact each other. Uh, they had to have connection with each other because you had to walk through one neighborhood to get to another neighborhood. It wasn't like today where you can just cell phone your way from one, you know, Instagram your way from one block to the next. So, I, I you know, the Italians, blacks, and Irish who lived in Brooklyn, and Jews who lived in Brooklyn, they found ways to get along and they they connected in ways that people very rarely talk about and elefante is representative he represents that element and also i needed a character in the middle of the book to sort of to to buoy this story along and to connect some of the various elements that um that make this complicated story simple um and I needed Elefante to have some kind of motivating element that would push him just a little bit beyond where he is. I mean, this is a character who the mob doesn't really like, even though he works for the mob, because he, 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 he runs a pier, he runs a port, and he's, he's a smuggler, but he doesn't like drugs. He's, a, he's an honest man in the sense that he, he just doesn't like criminality, but he's doing what he has to do to survive. And he's, and he's nobody that you'd want across. So he was someone that everybody was afraid of. And even the mobsters who, he, who ruled the, the neighborhood didn't really like to monkey with the elephant too much because he was, uh, he was dangerous. So he was a good character to work with. Absolutely. Thank you so much, James. Listeners, I've been speaking with James McBride, the author of Deacon King Kong, published by our friends at Riverhead Books, a novel that is sure to be one of the best of 2020. James will be joining us at the North Carolina Book Festival and Quail Ridge Books Arts and Lecture Series on March 17th in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information can be found at www.quailridgebooks.com. James, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Once again, I would like to thank James McBride for joining me. Signed copies of Deacon King Kong can be pre-ordered in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. The North Carolina Book Festival is February 21st through 23rd in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, featuring all of your favorite local, national, and international best-selling and award-winning authors. More information can be found online at www.ncbookfestival.com. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.